How do we sweep away? How do we, on a regular basis, get rid of those uh, those amyloid uh, beta cells? But also, how do we keep increasing the neurons so we have more and more neurons to to play upon, to call upon? Okay. Yeah. So two distinctions. So amyloid beta is a protein. Okay. It's not a cell. Your neurons are cells. You have um, in your brain. You have neurons and you have glial cells. Um, so, okay, so how do we clear away? How do we prevent this accumulation from happening in just our, our day-to-day lives? So is there anything we can do about this? Or are we all just destined to get Alzheimer's as we get older? And it turns out, like heart health, we can have a big impact on our brain health. So I can't do anything about what you've inherited from mom or dad. So some of us have a, an increased risk of getting Alzheimer's, and some of us have less of a, of a risk of, of getting the disease. But for all of us, um, or for for Actually, there are 5% of people who get Alzheimer's have a hereditary form like Alice and, and still Alice, um, where they're going to get the disease no matter what happens. But for 95% of us, we can actually have some impact on this. So, okay, what can you do? So it turns out that heart health actually impacts brain health. So we know that high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, all uh, smoking increase your risk of Alzheimer's significantly. And we know that aerobic exercise clears away amyloid beta, actually better than any pharmaceutical that we've seen so far. Um, Lots of animal studies show that aerobic exercise clears away amyloid. Um, So we know that there's a connection between um, heart health and Alzheimer's. There's a couple of longitudinal studies um, out of Europe that came out this past year that show that a Mediterranean diet decreases your risk of dementia by a third. So while we don't understand the mechanism yet, we know that heart health is going to improve your chances of not getting Alzheimer's. We also know that sleep has an impact on amyloid beta, um, which I found a little disturbing because for many, many years between having three children and a career, I don't often get enough sleep. But it turns out that in slow-wave deep sleep, our glial cells in our brains, these are sort of like the janitor cells that, that, that sweep away debris that's accumulated um, in the synapses, in those spaces where cells communicate. They, they clear away metabolic debris that have built up there during the day. But while we're asleep, um, it's a chance to clean up. So normally in deep sleep, the glial cells do this, the microglia do this. But what happens if you don't get enough sleep? If you deprive yourself of enough slow-wave deep sleep, the glial cells haven't had enough chance to sweep away the debris. Well, one of the things in the debris is it's amyloid beta. And so if you don't get enough sleep, you're starting the next day with some extra amyloid accumulated. And interestingly, studies have also shown that a that a lack of sleep actually leads to um, more amyloid being produced. So it, it's a it's a positive feedback loop that you don't clear it up away and you make more if you're not getting enough sleep. So sleep is a good thing, and uh, which I love to hear because I love to sleep. But let me ask you, can you clean away some of this metabolic debris through meditation? And would that take you down into the slow wave uh close to the slow wave deep sleep? Is there any research on that? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if those studies have been done yet. I'm sure someone's working on it. I do know that meditation is great for reducing stress levels. And 
and this isn't just a feeling, the, the physiology of stress actually compromises our memory. Um, so if we're chronically stressed, so normally the stress cycle in our body is, a re- is intended to be a response to an acute crisis. So sort of evolutionarily, if there's a a predator chasing us, it's a quick fight or flight. So in your brain, uh, a neurotransmitter is released um, from the hypothalamus um, to the pituitary. The pituitary releases a hormone onto your adrenal glands, which sit on your kidneys, and those release um, adrenaline. Um, cortisol. So it's, it's run, it's heart pumping, it's, it's big response to this thing that's supposed to be quick. And interestingly, the, that adrenaline then, then goes back to the brain and shuts off the, the hypothalamus so that, so that this whole thing is just a, a, an on and then quick off. Well, with chronic stress, it turns out that the receptors in the brain start to either be downregulated or insensitive to the adrenaline and the shutoff valve breaks essentially. And so we're just constantly dumping adrenaline into our system. And in addition to that, we um, end up with a dampening of our ability to, um, to shuttle information from short-term memory into long-term memory. So we can have compromised memory with chronic stress. So meditation, you can, um, by reducing levels of stress, by by learning to be present and calm and non-reactive, we can we can get that balance back to that uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like that cortisol and that dumping the cortisol in our bloodstream is uh, bad news for several reasons. It's it's this domino effect. It oh, absolutely, and it creates you know everything from weight gain to anxiety, depression, and now we're hearing even leading system. Yep. Memory problems. Yep. Okay. Well, you mentioned exercise and it it being at the top of the list of what everybody, uh, some aerobic exercise of what everybody should be doing to help uh, stave off some of the symptoms and the disease itself. So I wonder if there's been much research done on exactly the type of exercise or if it matters, whether if you go out for a walk or if it has to be intense exercise, like interval training, or whether strength training falls in that category. And of course, I always come up with yoga because that serves the purpose of not only giving the circulation through your body, but also de-stressing you. But any thoughts on that? Or is there any is there any exercise in particular that you're seeing gives the biggest bang for its buck? Again, this is a great question, but these studies haven't been done. Um, the exercise studies have been done in mice um, in terms of actually measuring the amyloid beta that gets cleared away. In terms of people, the studies that have been done haven't been putting them in a PET scan where they get injected with a radio-labeled amyloid and measuring for those levels yet, although that's, those studies are interesting and, and people want to do them to show the direct connection between exercise and amyloid levels in the brain. The studies have been more correlational. So studying, um, again, these longitudinal studies where, where people in different groups are exercising or not exercising. Um, there's a study called the finger study that, that folks can look up to see what sorts of specific exercises they did. I can't really remember the regimen, but some exercised and some didn't. And some were on a uh, Mediterranean diet and some weren't. 
And the folks who had the exercise and diet fared significantly better in terms of memory and cognition than, than those who were sedentary and, and, and didn't eat the, the healthy food. A quick note about the people who make this show possible, Health IQ. They're a life insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. It's like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver. And who doesn't want that? So if you love to run, cycle, walk, swim, or just exercise in general, then take the free health quiz at healthiq.com slash Smith and see which plans you qualify for. Once again, that's healthiq.com slash Kathy Smith. All right, back to the show. It's such great news to think that um, that statistic that you said earlier that only 5% of this whole disease is um, really mm-hmm. genetically driven. And then we have the other 95% that you can with exercise diet, you can create your own destiny in a sense. So let me ask you, because when it comes to exercise, we know there's a couple th- there's a couple factors going on when it comes to the brain and one is this idea of uh creating new neurons and this also this idea of neuroplasticity and we've we've all been told early when we turn 40 you know start doing your crossword puzzles start doing your um uh you know sudoku or whatever it is that you do to stimulate the brain and yet there are so many studies that show that exercise is a key component in developing this neuroplasticity. Am I accurate or not? A little bit. Yeah. So there's two things. One is, can you stimulate the growth of new neurons? And the other is, can you make neural new neural connections? And so it turns out that yes, again, and especially in animal models, we've seen that that exercise can actually stimulate the growth of new neurons in certain parts of the brain. And, And this was you know, when I was being trained as a neuroscientist, we were actually taught that you could never make new neurons as an adult. So this is phenomenal news for lots of reasons and lots of areas of research where you might want to, you might ideally want to grow new neurons in spinal cord injuries or ALS or Huntington's or Parkinson's um, and even Alzheimer's. But for those of us without you know, those advancements in medicine to re to grow new neurons. And, and while exercise may have some effect on that or not, what we really know, and what I really want to encourage your listeners is to learn new things. Because every time we learn something new, we are creating and strengthening new neural connections, new synapses. So again, this is a disease of the synapse, Alzheimer's begins in the synaptic connections where neurons communicate information. And it turns out that we make and lose those neural connections all the time. And that's when you say neuroplasticity, that's what we mean. Your brain isn't the same day to day. So right now I'm having a conversation with you and we've never talked before. And so I am listening to you and I've read your bio and gone to your podcast and I'm, I'm developing new connections that will help me in the future. If someone says, Hey, have you ever listened to a Kathy Smith podcast? I have lots of information now I can draw from that didn't exist yesterday. So one of the things I tell folks is, and, and so the idea is this with Alzheimer's. So say I have Alzheimer's and say, I, I only know one thing about you, Kathy. 
say I, I know that, that you have a podcast and that's the only thing I know. And say I have Alzheimer's and that amyloid beta has reached the tipping point. And it's caused tangles in the neurons and inflammation and cell death. And that, that synapse is now um, that synapse is now dead and the neurons are gone. And someone asked me, hey, do you know anything about Kathy Smith? I can't even remember who you are. That's it. Like it's it's I've forgotten you forever. But what if I knew 10 things about you? What if I built nine additional neural connections, associations, things that I can understand and know about you? Then when someone says, hey, do you know Kathy Smith? I have nine other, think of them as roads. I have nine other roads to get around, the to detour that wreckage of that Alzheimer's disease. So I tell folks, you know, crossword puzzles uh, aren't really doing what we want because those tend to retrieve information that we already know. So we're traveling down roads that have already been paved and laid down and are there in our brains. We want to build more neural roads, more neural connections. So this is really about um, reading a book, seeing a movie, making new friends, learning to play piano, traveling to a new city, um, exploring new neighborhoods. Those actually build new connections in your brain. Well, expanding upon that thought then, I know for me, and I know this is not scientific, but just from a personal uh, point of view, I find that, one, if I go and do something, like let's say I read a book or I go see a movie, if I leave the movie and don't discuss it, don't Mm -hmm. think about it, don't talk about it, then I literally... (laughs) Two weeks later, might not remember the name, the people, and I might even think like, what was that movie about? But if I leave and then sit down and say, oh, so what did you think about such and such? Or how did you, what do you think they meant by that? Or what did you think about that actor? I now have imprinted that. And it seems if I do it one more time in the next couple of days, it's, I'm more likely to retain that information. So that's one little thing that I do. Well, so this, you're getting at something called rehearsal. So think about anything that you do in life. So if you do it once and never again, you probably are going to have a hard time knowing how to do that. Um, or likewise, remember something. If you think of something once and then you never think about it again, it's hard to then remember anything about that. But if we rehearse that information, if we draw... So if you see, and this happens to everyone if, if with books and movies, you go through it. It's not, say it's a movie. It's 90 minutes. If you never discuss it again... That information went in your brain, you had the experience, but then it might not get shuttled from short-term memory to long-term memory because it wasn't rehearsed or reinforced in some way. So if you then go to dinner afterwards and you discuss it with friends and you talk about various details, like, oh, that's like when I was a kid, I remember this, or the you talk about the big emotions, like, oh, when the husband died, like there's grief that you can recall from your own lives and, and you... If you can draw rich associations, especially if they're emotionally based, you are going to help lock in that memory um, and it'll be richly supported by sights, sounds, emotions, who you were with, where you were. Um, It's sort of like when we have for sort of, I guess, really upsetting, catastrophic, surprising events. So, you know, like when the Twin Towers were um, crashed into and came down, or for you know older folks when JFK was shot, big upsetting, surprising information that that big emotion helps lock you. Most people remember where they were when that those events happened, or who they were with, or what they were wearing. You normally wouldn't remember 
you know, what was going on on that day, but that big emotion helps you rehearse it and experience it over and over.